Are you ready for good talk? Friday of another week. It's good talk time. Chantelle Bear is in uh, Montreal. And Rob Russo is joining us from Ottawa. Rob's filling in for uh, Bruce Anderson this week. And Rob, of course, former Bureau Chief of CBC in Ottawa, former Bureau Chief of CP in Ottawa, former Washington correspondent, former Quebec City correspondent. So he's been there, done that on a lot of different things. And uh, we value his expertise and his uh, thinking behind a lot of the stories we cover. So uh, in fact, we're going to start with you, Rob, because I, you know, there is, there is this theory that it's the simple things that get <laughs> get a lot of attention uh, on on a wide selection of uh, listeners and viewers. They grab onto the things that are often, you know, simple to understand, but you have a feeling about them. You sort of get either upset or you praise it, uh, and one of those has kind of stumbled into the. Uh, into the news vein in the last couple of days, and that's the the story of the passports. Now, Canadian passports every ten years or so are supposedly changed because for security reasons uh, to stop counterfeiting of, of passports. Well, this latest change has got some people uh, a little upset. Certainly, the opposition party is upset about this. The uh, the the outgoing passports uh, were. Uh, started in, I think, 2012 and uh, by the Harper government. And they reflected on historic moments in, in Canadian life. You know, uh, Vimy Ridge, Confederation, Terry Fox. Uh, and those kind of images are on the back pages. Well, not the back pages, but they're sort of uh, in the background of the various pages inside your passport. Um, the new one is going to ditch all all the history and basically have... Well, as the opposition said, it looks like a coloring book of uh, various images of, uh, of Canada, drawings of Canada. So how big a deal is this? I mean, quite frankly, how often do you look at your passport? How often do you carry your passport? But when you do, what do you want to be looking at inside there? Um, Rob, is this a big deal? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and uh, you're right, it is a simple thing. But I do believe uh, that it is one of those <clears throat> symbolic things. It's, and um, symbols can be very powerful. Um, and I'll give you an example of how it was used, our, our passport, to powerful effect. Um, all of us were around when the 1995 referendum was held. And Jean Charest used the simple, humble passport, holding it up at a podium, to very, very powerful effect. Uh, when he was uh, talking to Quebecers and vowing that no one would take this symbol of who he was away from him, uh, which is what uh, Jacques Parizeau and, and the Parti Québécois was threatening to do during during that referendum. And it had, uh, I think, fair to say, an electric effect on audiences inside and out, outside of Quebec. So does it strike away uh, a chord in, in a way that's profound with Canadians? I think it does. Now, does our history change? Yes. Uh, our history changes as we change, as we mature as a nation. We, we evolve. And, and so the question that, that some people might ask is, um, you know, as Canada becomes more and more a country where people are, are from other countries, uh, you, you look at uh, Toronto, which is over, over, well over 50% foreign-born now in Vancouver, does history have the same impact on people? Some people might not might not think so, but I believe people come to Canada for a reason, and they come here to share in our history and to share in our our identity and to contribute to that history and to that identity. So that when you look at images that are generic, images that can be found really anywhere, like you know birds and bears can be found in dozens of countries, and that's what we've got now in the passport. Uh, and, and when you what's been um, replaced uh, because I don't know that era I think erased might be too strong a word when, when we think of of, of Vimy uh, and, and 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 powerful symbols like that. I, I'm not sure that they strike the chord that people uh, people want us to strike when they think about Canada abroad. Could they have been replaced? Absolutely. History history evolves. Uh, you've got to refresh it. Would I have liked to have seen Charlebois and Gordon Lightfoot maybe on our passports or an Anukshuk? on our passports. Yes, 
a- absolutely. Um, but I think the government probably got this one wrong. Uh, and I think that they're underestimating the um, the symbolic nature of what a passport is. Chantal? Okay, um, I'm going to go completely the other way. Uh, I know I'm not going to surprise uh, either of you with uh, the news that this is a total non-event uh, in a province that values symbols. Uh, it's, nothing happened. No one has gotten up to say, well, you know, it would be nice if they put René Lévesque in there for uh, his contribution to uh, Quebec society or, or nationalizing hydro. That's not happening. To uh, Rob's point about Jean Charest using the passport, sure. But Jean Charest didn't open the inside pages, which back then did not even have any history figures by the way, he and the passport we will be getting is just as good for showing. Uh, People are quarreling over the inside pages. You asked, how often do you look at your passport? Well, I do. I do to look at the stamps I get on those inside pages. So here we are literally saying that our identity and our our history, the, the one we convey to all these new Canadians, is meant to be put between the pages of a passport so that some foreign border person can put a huge stamp on it, on them. I, 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 I you know, I, I'll claim tempest in a teapot here. I noticed that most of the anger is uh, uh, revolves around conservative sympathizers, including the, the, the leader uh, of the opposition in the House of Commons. But... Until Stephen Harper and his, his team put in those pictures, and I have nothing against the past pictures either. I'm indifferent to what pictures you put in between the pages of my passport. I, they are, I'm not indifferent to how many stamps I can collect with any given passport because it gives me a report card on a good life. I've managed to travel, see other places. As for bears and birds that are generic and meaningless, Yes and no. If we're going to go down the route of all these new Canadians who come to Toronto and elsewhere, one big thing about many new Canadians is that they experience a lot of Canada from the perspective of our larger cities. But most of them, or many of them, do not get to experience Canadian nature uh, in any way, shape, or form, unless you count the pigeons that you're hearing uh, as I'm speaking, because my window is open and they're having fun in the garden here. So I don't know. Uh, whichever way you want to go on this, for me, it's more of a clickbaiting, uh, interesting topic for discussion, but not a big deal. Yeah, I, I think we all agree on that. It is a very, you know, it's a simple story, but it is one of those simple stories that sometimes takes off on you and and can have an impact with certain segments of the population. Um, On on the stamp in your passport, sometimes you actually got to really look for that these days because there's so many countries you go through that they don't do anything. You just hold up the passport and away you go. Uh, and they don't you can stand. ask them, though. I've discovered oh, no. yeah, if yeah, you yeah, have yeah. kids who want to collect them, I don't sure. collect them to that degree, but uh, you can actually ask for yeah, that stamp. Absolutely. And they sort of look at you like, you're bothering me, but here's your stamp. Um, here's my, uh, you know, I have two passports. I have a British passport and a Canadian passport because I was born in Britain. Uh, here's one of my uh, former British passports. Um, and you can tell it's a form because it's been, you know, clipped to show that it doesn't, uh, it's not good anymore. But I look through the British passport now, you know, a country with some history, right? We'd have to agree. What are the pictures in the, ba- on, on the, you know, in the distance of, uh, in a British passport, at least this, this version of one, they're all birds. <laughs> they're all birds. There's no, there's no like you know, ten sixty six. There's no and, uh, Churchill. There's no none of that. What kind of shape is is what kind of shape is Britain in today? Oh, great! <laughs> so what a weak, weak <laughs> argument here. Yes, yeah, right. right. Uh, and by the way, did any border no. guard ever open your passport and say, "Gee, I need to look at it for longer because it's such so interesting all this history <laughs> that it's bringing to me." Yeah, but no, it I did you do a little travel. I, I have done a fair amount of travel this year, and I and I'm I'm from an Italian family, and I can tell you they do pick up 
our passport when I when they ask to see it. And they do go through it. So there is a sense of who we are to other people. Yeah, but they um, go through it to see where you have been. They don't go through it to oh, see no. the pictures, Rob, seriously. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm afraid I've bored them with all kinds of stories about where I've been for a long, long time. We are a country with very few sim symbols. And we are a country currently led by somebody who has said that we're a post-national country as well. Um, and, and, and so uh, I, I think there, there are very few uh, or there, there seem to be fewer and fewer uh, examples of who we are as, as a people. Um, and, and yes, this is this is a symbol. But, um, uh, you know, I as somebody who, who was born just a few months after my parents came, I, I'd love to learn about Vimy Ridge. I love to be reminded about Vimy Ridge. I took my kids to Vimy Ridge, uh, and, and those sort, sorts of things instilled in me a sense of identity. Uh, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. Yeah, but I don't know that you should be relying on the inside pages of a passport for your kids to be learning about this stuff uh, instead of, of, of the school. And I say that as someone who, in this latest career as a homework helper, is learning a lot of history that uh, wasn't taught when I went to school. But I figure if my grandkids are going to learn Canadian history, uh, they should be learning it in books, not in a passport. Sure. And if But that's what we depend on for people to have a common history, good luck to us. Uh, because those pages are meant for stamping. No, well, but also a reminder of, of what is important in our history and, and who we are as a people. And it doesn't have to be, as, as I said, Uh, I, I, I would love to see, uh, you know, Rock Carrier or, or, uh, like, uh, or, or, uh, or, um, Céline Dion. Uh, um, oh. No, well, I don't know about Céline. It might be, see? that might be a bridge too. It might be a bridge too far. Uh, but Charles Bois Lightfoot come to mind. Rock and Richard. People who told the, who told the story of us. Uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and Charles Bois tell the story of who we are as a people. And I think that those are, are those those are things that are worth reminding us ourselves about. And Gord Downey, That's and the list goes on. There there are lots of things. Look, I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to go on too long on this, but I, and I probably come down firmly in the middle of you two, which is always a safe spot to be. But um, I, I I'm <laughs> assuming think? I'm assuming this is one of those, not a one day wonder, but it's one of those things that uh, they make their mark. Uh, those who are, are, are opposed to this move, they make their mark with it. They stamp the ground. And when it comes time for whatever it may be, an election campaign or something similar to that, it becomes, you know, the three-second moment within the ad about reminding everybody what, what these guys did, you know. And, you know, and that's it. So they're just, like, covering the turf. I'm sure by next week this is not an issue. It becomes this, you know, a line that is thrown out every once in a while as a sort of reminder. But, I, you know, I listen, any, for me, any, any moment where you're encouraging Canadians to understand their history, I agree with Chantel. I mean, you're not going to learn your history by reading, looking at your passport. But, you, you know, by flipping through your passport at those rare times when you actually use your passport, doesn't hurt, you know, to be able to see those things. And, uh, you know, that's my feeling about it. I wouldn't go to the wall on it as a, as an issue, but, uh, nevertheless, moving on, having settled the passport story, Fred Delory is a name that the three of us know well, and most reporters know well, because he ran the conservative campaign last time around. Um, And he, you know, he's a, he's definitely a figure in the Conservative Party of Canada, or has been. He uh, started a Substack column um, just this week, and he's hit two home runs right out of the gate with two big stories that are, are being followed closely and being talked about. One was that Max Bernier from the People's Party of Canada, former uh, Conservative cabinet minister, um, and in the uh, in the early Harper days. Um, Uh, is uh, apparently today, later today, going to announce his candidacy uh, in the uh, Portage-Lisker riding in Manitoba. Now, that's caused some consternation within the Conservative Party, but then he follows that up with a second column two days later, 
saying, guess what? Center Ice Canadians was just this group of Canadians who have said, you know, there's got to be room for another party somewhere in the middle of the Conservatives and the Liberals. And um, he said, uh, Fred Delorie is suggesting they just might formally get into an election campaign. So both these stories certainly are of interest to Conservatives and probably Liberals too, because they see this as a wedge against the Conservatives. Um what do we make of this? Chantel, why don't you uh, start? Well, uh, a word on Fred Delory. I, I don't know uh, Fred Delory personally, uh, but I, I, I do know and I've asked around to make sure that my sense of who he was was uh, accurate. So I've asked conservatives. Uh, he worked for Stephen Harper uh, and Stephen Harper's uh, inner guard uh, before he led the last uh, conservative election campaign. He is not someone who is settling scores. Everyone tells me he's also not a red Tory. He, he is a conservative of the Harper variety, not someone about whom you'll say, well, you know, was he even ever uh, a conservative and uh, some other life? Uh, maybe he's someone else. My sense of reading what he's writing, and I was struck when it started because it started with a tweet that said, um, I have too much to say, so I'm going to be writing these Substack columns. Uh, just a few weeks ago, before this tweet, uh, Fred Delory went to one of the committees that is asking about Chinese interference in the last election. And uh, he had come to my attention because he basically told the committee, this is a serious issue, and I wish you guys would manage to have an adult conversation about it, which was not at all what you normally expect from a conservative uh, election uh, director showing up to say, well, we were the election was not stolen from us, but almost nobody gets gave us a heads up. He insisted on the fact that he felt they were not having an adult enough conversation. Uh, and his comments, I took them to be directed at conservatives as much, if not more, as uh, at the liberals. And then he writes these substack columns. This is someone who normally should be able to tell Pierre Poilievre or a conservative leader's entourage, uh, share his experience and say, guys, you know, you are, you are not doing enough efforts on the left to keep progressives in your embrace. And now a number of them are thinking maybe we really need a center-right party, and Pierre Poilievre's party is not that. And at the same time, you're facing a challenge on the right that you will need to address in a way that does not antagonize the very people you need to win over in the next election. I figure if he's going to substack to do it, and a lot of conservatives have to be angry at him this week, it's because he's not getting through uh, to Poilievre and his team. Uh, and he's not getting through to caucus. Too many people have either drank, they've been drinking the Kool-Aid or they, they are faking that they drank the Kool-Aid to make sure that they have a position in a, an eventual conservative government. So I, I find the fact of the columns as interesting as what is being said in them. That being said about consternation, if I were the conservatives and Pierre Poilievre, I would be dancing with joy at the prospect of having Maxime Bernier running in a by-election in Manitoba, probably between now and June 24th. Why is that? Because if they do things right, they hold, the Poilievre people hold the Trump card. And the Trump card, I'm not trying to make a pun about the U.S. president here, um, is that they are asking people who dislike vaccine mandates and who may be attracted still to Maxime Bernier for that, do they dislike vaccine mandates in the past more than they dislike Justin Trudeau in the present? And if they dislike Justin Trudeau more in the present, then why would they want to waste their time on someone who at best will have one seat at the back of the House of Commons? And in the process of beating, um, and I mean beating Bernier soundly, they can put to rest the notion that the biggest threat to them is at the extreme right. Rob. Yeah. Um, 
let me go through some of Chantal's points because they're very, very good ones. There um, on Fred Delory, um, uh, he is he's um, he's a guy who has evolved as a conservative as the party itself has evolved uh, uh, since the beginning of this century, since Stephen Harper came on onto the scene as a, a Nova Scotia Tory. Uh, not of, not of the Calgary, Alberta kind of school of conservatism, and yet at the same time steeped in uh, Stephen Harper's conservatism, uh, and and what he's trying to do uh, is tell us that this this by election in particular, and and the uh, center ice conservatives are, are going to help sketch a portrait of Canadian conservatism as it continues to evolve in the first quarter of the twenty first century. He's uniquely positioned. To, to do this. Uh, as, as for the, the by-election, um, we've got a popular MP leaving in, in uh, Candace Bergen. I, I'm, I'm sure that's probably why uh, uh, Maxime Bernier thought that this was an opportunity for him because the um, uh, in the last election in 2021, the, CPC, uh, the PPC candidate, Bernier's candidate, got 22% of the vote compared to Candace Bergen's 50 plus percent of the vote. But that that PPC candidate uh, was a Mennonite uh, in, a, in a, um, a riding with a lot of Mennonites. <laughs> Mr. Bernier, the last time I checked, is, is not a Mennonite. There are probably still uh, some Francophones in that riding, not very, not very many of them. Um, and um, the Conservatives have nominated a candidate who is uh, opposed to uh, vaccine mandates as well. Um, not only that, uh, if Mr. Poiliev wants to, to flex his muscles vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the uh, PPC, he's already done that. If you look at fundraising, the Conservatives raised a record $8 million plus in the first quarter of this year. The PPC raised less than $300,000. This is the time to take on the PPC threat. This is the time to do it. If, if you're Pierre Poiliev, you stare them down right here where they think that they have strength, uh, and and you extinguish the threat. Now that being said, that being said, Poliev has been um, uh, uh, making open appeals to them. His laments for freedom, his complaints about gate gatekeepers. Uh, that's not a very subtle appeal to PPC's supporters. That's that's what he's doing. But but uh, uh, he's trying to add without subtracting is what he's trying to do. He's trying to to bring those people back. Um, uh, without um, alienating those who might be kicking the tires of uh, Poiliev's Conservative Party in the in the suburbs of, around uh, Toronto and Vancouver, in particular, it's it's not an easy thing to do. But this is the chance to try to extinguish or at least blunt the threat of the PPC. Okay, uh, you know what? I I want to talk a little more about this. We're going to take our first break. We'll be uh, right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge. It's the Friday episode. A good talk. Chantelle Bears in Montreal. Rob Russo filling in for Bruce Anderson uh, is in Ottawa. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube channel. Whichever platform you're using, we're happy to uh, have you with us. Uh, okay, back to this uh, this issue of uh, Fred Delory's comments, and uh, I want to focus We've pretty well dealt with the Max Bernier thing. I, I would only caution, as I've done before, and I know you guys do too, by-elections can be really unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen. Turnouts are mm -hmm. often low. It's the most committed goal uh, out and vote. And funny things can happen. They have happened in the past, not always, but there have been some uh, surprises on the by-election front. Let's just, let's just say that. But on the other angle, it sounds to me like the two of you are suggesting that the bigger threat here if there is a threat at all uh, to Polyev's conservatives, is the center ice a possibility? Um, so, talk to me uh, about that, Chantal. Um, the concept of, of center ice more so possibly than the execution, if there ever is. Okay, what is center ice Canadians? For those who aren't familiar, uh, it's a group of conservatives. Uh, Rick Peterson, who was a repeat leadership candidate uh, for the national leadership of the Conservative Party, um, 
kind of leads it, but there is also Tasha Keridan, who is a well-known conservative commentator who mused about running the last time the leadership opened up, eventually joined Jean Charest. Dominic Cardi, who used to be the Minister of Education in Blaine Higgs government. So uh, people that you would identify more as progressive conservatives in another era, probably, than you would as former reform uh, party members uh, or fans. And they have been saying the Conservative Party is is has steered away from what conservatism should be, that it, it is going to extremes. It's courting fringe groups, um, including the anti-vax uh, movement, uh, as a substitute for having a solid, rigorous, consent uh, or right ideology. And we need a party that can do that. They're basically targeting what they feel is, uh, uh, rightly, I think, an orphan community of voters, that is, blue liberals, liberals who who, who would be of John Manley or Paul Martin's persuasion, uh, and red Tories who have increasingly felt uh, rejected by the Conservative Party, especially in the wake of the last leadership campaign. And they're saying Canada needs a new center-right party, we're, and we're going to think about it, and we're going to decide by September 20th whether we put something on the ballot. Now, launching a new federal party in a crowded field like this one is kind of, of a, a good way to show your own weakness in the sense that it's very, very hard to imagine that such an event could do anything but... Um, take away a small percentage of votes, not off the liberals, really, but off the conservatives. And then narrowly fought writings, that could make a difference. It could make a difference in Atlantic Canada, where uh, there's been more affection for the old progressive conservative brand. Uh, it's not going to hurt Justin Trudeau. It's, it, it is seen as a, a judgment on Pierre Poilievre's leadership and, and the ideology he pursues. And here is the danger. It's not so much whether you suck votes, it's that you are telling the voters that Pierre Poilievre does need to attract, who will tend to be center-right voters, uh, small-c conservatives who have voted for the NDP or the Liberals or even the Bloc. Uh, this group is telling them, you, you're you not going to find a home with Pierre Poilievre. This is not a place where you want to go. And in the process, those voters will not necessarily go vote for this new thing, they will stick with the party that they voted for in the last election, i.e., in most cases, the Liberals or the Bloc, and uh, and, uh, make it even harder for uh, Poiliev to finish uh, as a winner on election night. Rob. Um, I asked somebody in uh, Mr. Poiliev's entourage what he thinks about uh, about this, and uh, they're, they're, I think, a little too sanguine about it. The, the reaction was essentially, we've tried a progressive conservative uh, the last time, and, and it, it didn't work. Um, we're putting up a real conservative this time, and we've attracted 300,000 new people to the party. Again, I think that they're, they're missing the opportunity to add rather than subtract, um, and, uh, look, we're, we're, we're all, we've all been around. We, we all saw what happened when the conservative party was divided. Um, uh, there is, uh, a lot of people argue about Stephen Harper's legacy, but the one thing that he did do was that by bringing together the disparate elements of the conservative party, and there were two or three elements of them at the time, there was a Quebec element that had gone off to form the block and, uh, there was a Western element that uh, that uh, was the Reform Party, and there was Joe Clark's element. By bringing those together, he made uh, uh, the Conservative Party a viable option again, a viable alternative to the Liberal government. And that is endangered by something like a centerized Conservative. Um, uh, and not just endangered, but it gives people, as Chantal said, a real home. And this is not just Conservatives. I was struck when I was at the Liberal Party convention uh, a week or so ago, I, I spoke to 
you know, a couple of cabinet ministers and MPs before Justin Trudeau spoke and then after he spoke just to find out what they wanted to hear from him and whether or not they heard it. And, and um, there are a lot of them that are worried about the vast swath of voters that the Liberals used to be very adept at targeting. The, the great um, swath of the middle of Canadian voters that Jean Chrétien was a, quite nimbly able to, to get uh, uh, to vote for him. And, and a lot of them came out of that speech saying, I didn't hear enough on, on the economy. I didn't hear enough on uh, on uh, the future of the country. Um, I, I'm not sure I can take this. There, there are a lot of people who are going to be looking at the other guys as a result of this. So liberals are concerned about a great opening in, in the center as well. Um, there There is no end of oxygen in the center of Canadian politics. It's been ever thus. I think we're not a people of extremes. I remember when Stephen Harper used to speak to reporters, he would say, we're at a disadvantage because at least 60% of Canadians every day get up in the middle and say, how are we going to vote for the liberal or a liberal option? Uh, and that hasn't changed. I don't think so. Uh, if something like this could actually be viable, could get some money and could uh, um, generate a little excitement with candidates, they represent a threat. And I think a far more mortal threat than, than Maxime Bernier. And you know, if Max Bernier tells you something, is you you don't you don't need to win seats to represent a threat. I mean, the last time round in that last election, uh, the People's Party got about five percent, I think, just under five percent, and it was that was eight or nine hundred thousand votes, enough to knock the Conservatives out of the race in some seats. Uh, yes, the, but uh, right. uh, but a, a small number of seats uh, because uh, the the PPC tended to do best in ridings where the conservatives were too strong to be defeated, like rather the, than in ridings where the liberals uh, held the seat by you know a, a half an inch. So, right. it's, well, but, like, to, like like the, like the one Rob mentioned in Portage Lisker last time round. Uh, but there were some yeah. seats in Ontario. I mean, I you know you you can look at different analysis of anywhere from between a half a dozen and a couple of dozen seats that might have swung uh, against the Conservatives because of the PPC vote. But the the point I'm trying to make is for centerized Canadians, if they actually get in the race, they don't need. You know, they don't need to win seats to make an impact. And when you're getting squeezed from both sides, albeit it appears at the moment that the PPC threat is less than it was last time around, but nevertheless, squeezing from both sides could have an impact uh, and not a good one for the Conservatives. But Chantel, you wanted to make the last point on this. Uh, and and my point will bring you back to, um, to, to, to the threat from the right uh, and the fact that in the last election, Maxime Bernier probably had his best, his best ride because of the anti-vax movement. That movement has lost a lot of steam. How do we know this? Well, we know it uh, in particular from a recent, recent experience in Quebec, uh, the Quebec City area, which is the conservative area in this province. Um, uh, as you know, the conservative party in Quebec showed up as a kind of a people's party in the last Quebec election, i.e. liable to suck away enough votes to to make the Coalition Avenir Quebec vulnerable, and no more so than in the Quebec City area. But just a few weeks ago, Premier Legault reneged on a major transit promise for that area, and, and it was a big deal, as big or bigger a deal than Jean Chrétien not getting rid of the GST. I love saying that because it makes Mr. Chrétien very unhappy. He <laughs> claims he never promised to get rid of the GST. But the first poll that was done, so everyone said this is a major opening for Eric Duhem and the Quebec Conservatives because they are the only party that is still promising and that has always promised to do this major tunnel for cars between the South Shore and downtown. Well, the very first poll did not show that. It did show a bit of an increase for AAQM's party, but it mostly showed a revival of the Parti Québécois in the area. In clear, people are now moving from, uh, we don't like uh, vaccinations and pandemic-related measures, and we're going to vote for whoever hates them, to we're going to vote who, for whoever can, in the long run, get us rid of the premier or the prime minister that we dislike. And that's why I think 
that if Pierre Poilier drops the ball in Portage Lisger, he will have had to try really, really hard to do so. Okay. One one last point, Peter, and to come back to what you were saying. In 2011, when the Conservatives won their majority, they did so because the NDP vote was very strong. And they did so. They won a lot of ridings with 33, 32, 34%. So very, very close. Um, and if that, uh, if a few percentage points are taken away from them uh, in, in a lot of these ridings, they're not going to get not, uh, a majority. And their, their chance of winning government is slackened as well, uh, is attenuated by any kind of um, uh, sapping of their vote, even by a few percentage points. Okay. Uh, you have space for one more point? <laughs> I just want to complicate the math of the sure. next election. No, go, go ahead. Complicate uh, you will it more. read and you will continue to read that the biggest problem for the Conservatives in winning government is going to be Quebec. But, uh, attention, if the Conservatives become too weak or as weak as they are now, this helps the Bloc Québécois. And what does the Bloc Québécois do when it's a bit stronger? It knocks out liberals for the conservatives. So nothing is going to be simple uh, come the math of the next election. And those battles are going to be, the dynamics of those battles are going to be complicated, absent a leader who walks on water over all these waves. Uh, And I don't see either Poilier or Trudeau being that leader. Ah, you got to love it. Bring it on whenever it is. A couple of years from now, next year, this fall, bring it on. It's going to be fun. Um, Okay. I I, want to move to the Michael Chong story for a moment. Uh, I know we've done this, uh, you know, know, over the last few weeks, but I got a letter this week uh, from a a very bright viewer who writes every once in a while. who says this, the first explanation the Prime Minister gave for not knowing about Michael Chong threats was that CSIS didn't think it important enough to elevate. Well, did Michael Chong come under pressure? Apparently not, because he didn't know anything about it. Did his family come under pressure in China? Again, it seems not, because Chong hasn't reported it. So maybe it wasn't much after all. Um... Rob, what do you make of that? I, I disagree. I, I, I just find that um, having uh, representatives of authoritarian regimes on our soil, even musing about the possibility of, of muscling um, our members of parliament uh, into intimidation uh, and, and doing so so that they're recorded rep- represents uh, an unacceptable threat. Um, so I, I, I would, I would disagree with that. The other, the other thing I, I would note about, uh, about this week and this week's developments are, are that there have been two more stories now that are substan- substantial on, on, on this. There, there's another one from, uh, from the Globe and Mail that said that this particular diplomat who was doing the intimidating, uh, had been, uh, in effect followed and listened to, uh, by CSIS since 2020. So he's, he's been doing this for some time now, uh, and, and that, uh, that CSIS had a, a file on him and had passed this file on to Global Affairs Canada. So two things. Again, the, the prime, prime Minister is going to be asked whether or not this was uh, passed on to him and his office. That there, there's going to be a whole familiar trail of questions as a result of this. But I think the more important angle for the, the Liberals is going to be uh, you can call an inquiry into this, but there continues to be at least one person and maybe more people inside of our security apparatus who don't want this story to go away, who don't believe that you're doing enough on this. And uh, you won't be able to hide behind um, there's an inquiry, so we can't say anything about this. This is going to be an issue that is going to bedevil the government uh, daily for some time now. And this is going to be an issue that the government is going to have to deal with, that there are still people inside the security apparatus who don't like what they've heard from the government uh, and continue to make public things that others at the senior levels of of the security apparatus are very, very nervous about. Chantal. Oh, if I were a member of the Canadian diaspora and I had family abroad, uh, uh, the notion that some authoritarian regime could do things to them uh, because of something I write 
uh, in columns or something I say on this program, I would find profoundly disturbing. Uh, and 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 I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I understand Mr. Chong has been keeping a distance from his, his uh, extended family in Hong Kong for that reason. I wouldn't be sending them emails uh, in a country where you, people are monitored to find out if anything is happening. And if I were stupid enough to do that, I'm guessing they would be smart enough not to respond uh, and to ignore all of this. But I do have increasingly questions about um, about CSIS uh, itself. Uh, one question, for instance, about this today's story on the Globe and Mail that they known about this Chinese diplomat uh, and his actions for years. What if they wanted to keep him in the country? What exactly. if they were happy to know who he was and to monitor him rather than wait for the inevitable person who will be tasked with the same uh, mission? And that is what is going to happen, but that it will take them a while to, fa to, to find uh, and monitor as effectively. First question. Uh, uh, second question goes to those leaks. Maybe Rob is right. Maybe those leaks are based on the notion that people at CSIS who are so concerned about our national security are leaking and breaking the law by doing so because they don't believe the liberals are doing enough. But what if it's just because they don't like the government? At that point, when do we start asking ourselves um, why CSIS actively leaking about national security issues uh, and destabilizing a government at the very least and and uh, depriving or sucking away confidence in that government is just as much a threat to democ democracy as the notion of Chinese interference in elections. Now, what, it what I'm hearing... Uh, and what I'm hearing is that Canada's allies are asking questions, mm -hmm. but they're not asking just questions about what we are doing about Chinese interference. They're all do dealing with this um, in all kinds of ways. Have you watched President Macron's visit to, to China? Did it look like the kind of visit Justin Trudeau could make without being unseated by his own caucus the next morning? But they're asking what's wrong or what's happening with your security service? We are sharing information with a leaky security service. We don't want to share information, national security information uh, with a sieve. And it seems to just keep on coming. So I, at this point, responsible adults, not just uh, liberals who want to you know, put an end to this, responsible adults have to start asking how much damage is being done uh, by what is happening at CSIS uh, versus just uh, how long was it uh, uh, that that uh, the government uh, did or did not know uh, about this diplomat. And if uh, CSIS, and I totally believe that they were aware of his existence and his activities for years, if CSIS wanted him out and uh, everyone turned a deaf ear, that's one thing. But we don't know that. Mm -hmm. And we have seen no evidence because all the evidence we see is selected on the basis of uh, maximum damage to the, a government that cannot discuss national security in public. So I'm, I'm getting a bit troubled uh, by this acceptance that there's a hero at CSIS somewhere who is saving our country from China, possibly. But there is another take on this. Yeah, yeah, there even, is. Uh, uh, just a second, Rob, I, uh, Rob, Rob yeah. I've, I've only got a minute left on this particular topic. So uh, you tell me, is there any evidence that CSIS leadership is doing anything to determine where the leaks are coming from? No, but you've got to know that in this town, there is a furious search on now for the leaker. We keep saying CSIS or the whistleblower. It, it could. It doesn't have to be within CSIS. This information was shared uh, among Privy Council Office, Global Affairs Canada, but there is a furious hunt on for this. One one last point, um, you know, this would not be the first time in recent history that our security officials have played a pivotal role in the election. In 2006, the election that elected Stephen Harper for the first time, the RCMP revealed in the middle of the campaign that they were investigating the, the finance minister, Ralph Goodale. And that 
turn the election around. Paul Martin went from leading that election to losing it. So these things can have a huge impact. Uh, and uh, I think Chantal is right to raise questions as to whether or not Canadians should be comfortable with security agencies having that kind of an influence on our democratic process. All right, final break uh, time, and here it is. Welcome back. We got a couple of minutes left for our uh, final segment of uh, Good Talk for this week. Chantel and Rob are are with us. Um, there was quite the spectacle on Thursday night in the United States, and I'm sure some Canadians watched it, if not a lot of Canadians watched it. And that was Donald Trump. Of course, they were competing against the Leaf game. The Leafs made an incredible comeback in their series <laughs> for one game, anyway. But nevertheless, Donald Trump um, got basically free time on uh, on CNN for an hour and a half. And right out of the gate, he kept true to form. He lied. He lied one time after another, lie after lie after lie for an hour and a half. It was an incredible platform that was given to him by CNN. Um, what did we learn that night that we didn't already know? I mean, we know something about Trump, and we know about how he lies. Uh, but we learned something about, I don't know whether it was just CNN, but the media in general, it's not like everybody else didn't talk about it and report on it and spend time on it. Uh, what was the, what was the learn on that night and what impact does that have? Um, Rob, former Washington correspondent, you go first. And I've only got a couple of minutes. Yeah, I, I, I would say what we learned, uh, th- th- there were lots of problems with what they did editorially, and that's a separate matter. But what, what we learned was that Donald Trump is serious. He is the front runner for the Republican nomination. He does have a large amount of people who believe everything he says that are prepared to cheer when he uh, denigrates a, a woman that he's been found liable of uh, sexually assaulting. Uh, so he's he's back. He's real. He's organized, and he is the front runner for the Republican nomination. We everybody around the world and people in the United States needs to take him seriously again. Uh, and for Canada, I think that that has um, a potential huge huge impact not only on the trade front and our place in the world, but for the Conservatives. I, th- I think another problem for Pierre Poilievre is going to be the resurrection of Donald uh, Trump. If he does come back, should he get elected in 2024, will there be a revulsion against uh, uh, that kind of conservatism? And will that have an impact here? So those are the two things I pulled away politically from that, is that this guy's back, he's real, he's organized, and people are prepared to believe and cheer his lies over and over and over again. And there is a potential spillover impact for conservatives here in Canada. Chantel. Well, uh, on, on CNN and the format, I'll just say that it was a terrible night for uh, journalism. And anyone who believes in rigorous journalism, this was the opposite of what it, it should be. Um, I agree with uh, Rob that it, the signal was also that no matter your disbelief at watching the performance, there are enough people in the U.S. willing to believe that to make Trump a force to contend with. And if I were watching that from uh, Ukraine with time on my hands, which I suspect people there don't have, I would really worry about what happens to Ukraine if Donald Trump comes back uh, to government, because clearly he is willing to lead the uh, let the Russians have them uh, kind of cohort. Um, as for the impact in this country, y- yes, I don't believe it's good for Pierre Poiliev to 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 have to run in an election campaign against the backdrop of a return of Donald Trump. Uh, but I also think that we should be careful about comparisons between conservative leaders in this country, and they come too easily. Uh, and what we witnessed uh, in the U.S., I don't think any leader in this country would, could get down to the level that we watched uh, and get away with it uh, in this country. And that's encouraging. But um, I'll bring you back to your your history and passport from the beginning. 
It does show a need, though, to push civics education uh, notions about the rule of law, uh, etc., outside of passport pages, if we are going to keep a strong uh, electorate and an informed one that doesn't fall prey to uh, these kinds of uh, snake oil uh, politicians. Um, I, I got a minute or so left. What... What advice would you give if they asked uh, our our American colleagues in the in the media? I mean, I, I you know I jumped on CNN myself the other night, you know, watching it and being kind of appalled about what I saw. But then I kept saying to myself, "Well, how do you cover this guy? Like, what do you do when you have a guy who's consistently lying? It's not like they didn't push back. Caitlin Collins pushed back on on, on lie after lie, um, but at the end of the day, he got his lies across." So like, how do you cover right. that? You don't, you don't, you don't give them a live platform. Essentially, you you have to report on them. But and CNN started this in 2015 by giving him and his rallies a live platform. Uh, he lies so much, so constantly that is it, it's impossible to fact check him in real time. Uh, so when you confront him on one lie, he answers with three or four others. So you, you can't ignore him if he's going to be the Republican nominee. But do you give him an antenna where he's able to transmit these lies without being without any of his lies being verified? I think that's where uh, CNN went wrong. And I also think that they were wrong to stick with a format that allows those lies, in, in, including the, the vile things that he said, um, uh, about about the woman that he attacked in New York, uh, where he allowed, where those are allowed to be cheered by his supporters. So uh, you 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 cannot allow lies to spew and calumnies to be piled up in a live setting. It goes beyond seconds, uh, broadcasting those uh, those rallies. You're literally inviting the person in your studio, and you're making sure that the audience is the friendly audience. Uh, I I have as many quarrels with the audience notion uh, that you make sure it's a friendly audience. Well, you might as well let him organize the entire evening, which is basically what happened. Yeah. Uh, but but beyond that, I agree with you that uh, trying to find a way to cover this is uh, a daily problem for whoever covers uh, national politics in the U.S. All right. We're going to leave it at that. Uh, the politics of the lie is the subject of our latest Moore Butts conversation, which will be on Monday, uh, spurred on by what we witnessed just the other night. Uh, thanks to you, Rob, for filling in for Bruce once again. Thanks to Chantel. Both of you have a My great pleasure, both of you have a great weekend. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with the Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.